Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here. We're back after a little break for the July 4th holiday week. We've got some great episodes planned for the summer and into the fall, and we're very excited about today's episode. Uh, just as a reminder, if you've missed any past ones, you can find us on all your podcast platforms, and you can find all the episodes at the Gotham Gazette website, the Citizens Budget Commission website. And uh, make sure you give us feedback. I'm on Twitter at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Doulis. You can find our organizations. You can find lots of ways to, to get to us. So, uh, And make sure you're also subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and rating us and all that good stuff and telling your colleagues. And uh, we're very much looking forward to a summer of great episodes. And we begin that run with a guest we're very excited about today, the city's uh, health commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And before we get into our discussion with Dr. Bassett, here's Maria with today's data point. 1,441, the number of overdose fatalities in New York City in 2017. That's almost four people a day. More people die from overdose fatalities than from suicide, homicide, and motor vehicle accidents combined. 2017 marks a record level in a trend that has seen a sharp increase since 2011, and driving that trend is the opioid epidemic. More than 80% of these overdose fatalities involved opioids, and many of these involved the injection of heroin. To deal with this, the city launched Healing NYC in March 2017 and expanded the program in March 2018. The city is dedicating $60 million annually to prevent opioid misuse and deaths, connect New Yorkers to treatment options, and reduce the supply of opioids. A notable new initiative announced in May is a proposal to create supervised injection sites for heroin users. Here to discuss these centers and other topics related to the health of New Yorkers generally is the Commissioner of Health. Welcome, Dr. Bass. Thank you, Maria. And so um, before we get into Healing NYC uh, and the the supervised sites, um, just for general listeners, you've been a health commissioner appointed by Mayor de Blasio very early in his term. You're now one of the longest-serving commissioners. Um, But just give folks um, a little background, just, you know, sort of who you are and and what you did a little bit. You know, you have a very very long resume, and and so... um, we don't need, you know, every detail, but just a little bit about, you know, because you had such an interesting career. What are some of the some of the things before this position? Well, let me start out by saying <laughs> I grew up in New York City in Upper Manhattan, um, and uh, I actually went to medical school here in the city as well, and did my medical training in the public hospital system at Harlem Hospital. What people often find interesting about my working life is the fact that I spent many, many years in Southern Africa. I lived and worked in Zimbabwe from 1985 to 2002 when I returned to serve as the deputy commissioner of a new unit under Tom Frieden when he was the health commissioner called Health Promotion and Disease Prevention. It's true on a bad day, I sometimes got it as Health Prevention and Disease (laughs) promotion, (laughs) HPDP. Uh, And then I went to work for a private foundation, returning to do work that was focused on Africa and subsequently uh, early childhood development, and was very proud that that Mayor de Blasio gave me an opportunity to uh, serve the people of this wonderful city as health commissioner. A theme throughout my whole working life has been the link between public health and social justice and the importance of advancing equity as a way of improving health. Well, thank you. That was the perfect uh, synopsis for a, for a guest coming on to give a little background. So um, 
And and just to just to before we get into some of the the details of what you've been working on, if you if you could just a little bit more about sort of your view of of public health and your frame for the work that you do, how do you sort of describe it a little bit a little bit further? And and if, you know, it's I know it's very hard. There's so many different things that you work on, but the ways in which you describe the the frame that you've tried to bring. Uh, to this position. Sure. I, I think the most important distinction uh, between public health and the practice of medicine is that in public health, we see people's full lives, their everyday lives, as really critical to their attainment of health. It's more than just having a doctor and seeing that doctor. It's having a decent place to, to live, having a decent wage, having opportunities for recreation, for safety, for healthy food, for exercise, all of these um, parts of our lives, what people in public health often refer to as social determinants, are, uh, are considered in public health as part of what we need to uh, promote. We need healthy social determinants as a way of proceeding to a healthier population. There always will be social determinants of health. That's because we are not just biological beings, we're social beings. Uh, but when we talk about social determinants of health, we're talking about the unfair, adverse circumstances that affect many communities in New York City. Uh, these are not features of the people themselves who live in these communities. They're the result of bad policies over decades. So to pick up on that, we, the, C the CBC, did a broad quality of life survey yes, last year. That. And you know, we asked New Yorkers how satisfied they were with their services, and overall 60% said they were satisfied with the access of healthcare in their neighborhoods, which for point of reference for our listeners was much higher than many other neighborhood service, uh, other services. But there was still this wide disparity, right? Sure. The high was 80% satisfaction on the Upper West Side of Manhattan to the low of 35% in East New York. Yeah. So equity is a big deal to you. It's a big deal to the mayor. How do mm. you think about improving that for the areas where there is, you know, there are these complicated neighborhood community issues and this low satisfaction and not necessarily the best access to the best health care. Right. Well, these reflect the reality of people's lives. Our neighborhoods aren't all equally resourced. And uh, the way to address it is to focus more of our programming and attention on the neighborhoods which, uh, which have been deprived. And, you know, a neighborhood that is a poor neighborhood doesn't just have low-income people in it. What it means to be a poor neighborhood is to have no banking services, to have no supermarkets, to have parks that are run down, uh, and I, uh, you know, to have, um, you know, vacant lots that haven't been attended to. That's what it means to live in a poor neighborhood. And I, what you've seen in this administration is a willingness to acknowledge these gaps in resources across neighborhoods. The Parks Department, as you probably know very well, has. Uh, has engaged in a huge effort to upgrade not just our jewel in the crown of Central Park, which many, many New Yorkers use, it's wonderful, but neighborhood parks and a huge effort in improving the, the, these parks. You've seen uh, an effort at tackling rats. Uh, it used to be that we did all of our rat work in the health department based on complaints. Mm -hmm. Well, some neighborhoods, nobody bothers to complain about rats anymore. 
They see them all the time. You see one on the Upper East Side and the phones start ringing off the hook. Mm -hmm. So we started taking proactive approaches. The mayor has greatly resourced our efforts and those resources aren't just going to the health department. They're actually mostly going to NYCHA, to sanitation, uh, because it takes more than one department to achieve this. So not only have you seen a shift in investment, you've seen a willingness to work across agencies that everyone tells me is something that they really haven't seen in prior administrations. And, and how did the, the health equity neighborhood health action centers figure into this approach? Sure. Tell people what they are, tell people what their mission is, how they figure into this larger punch. The, um, the Neighborhood Health Action Centers actually take um, a page from the activities of Mayor LaGuardia, who is uh, you know, a, a, um, an iconic figure in our city's history and obviously a, a real role model for the current mayor, Bill de Blasio. And around the city, he had built um, district health centers. Back in the day, they had child health services, immunization clinics, well baby clinics. Uh, and over time, those services had dwindled. And of course, uh, in our city, we don't have, as you pointed out, every neighborhood feeling enormously needy. So we established what we're calling neighborhood health action centers in three neighborhoods of the city, in the South Bronx, in East and Central Harlem, and in, um, and in Central North Brooklyn. Uh, those were established actually when I was a deputy commissioner. Uh, so they've been uh, identified for 15 years. But what I did when I came back as commissioner was look at these buildings, many of which were underused, were, some of them were in the process of being vacated and returned to the city, and said, look, we have this real estate. It's a real asset. Let's refurbish them a bit and let's invite community-based organizations to work with us because, of course, Government's not the only organization that is focused on deprived areas of the city. Uh, many organizations have. And if we could all work together more effectively, we would have more impact. And the idea of co-location is really part of the idea of working more collectively. So that's what we did. Uh, we have now got three of these buildings up and running, and there are seven in all, and we're still working on the remaining ones. And uh, the idea is to bring our more intensive services, ones that usually involve more human investment, our home visiting programs, um, that we don't need to have every family visited across the city. But in these neighborhoods, we're going to concentrate uh, our work and, um, and ensure that communities that have been underinvested in will get more investment from us in the health department and better coordinated with community-based organizations. So that's the Neighborhood Health Action Center model. Uh, it's housed under uh, a new entity at the health department that I'd established called the Center for Health Equity, affectionately known as CHE. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, and these four, and the four, so there's three up and there's four others that you're hoping yes, to bring online? Yes, mm -hmm. they're there and they're working uh, and uh, they just aren't with a full model that we would like to mm -hmm. see. So, um, and we're, we're using those buildings. Um, the health department has some clinical services. You may know that we do 
Um, we do TB services. We do uh, services, and we have an immunization clinic. And we also have greatly expanded what we used to call our sexually transmitted disease clinics. And we now have rebranded them as sexual health clinics because the range of services that they offer is so broad mm -hmm. that they deserve to be called uh, clinics that advance sexual health. And they, a lot of the funding for the expansion of those clinics has come from ending the epidemic. Mm -hmm. Even though we are you know, a small s sector of clinical service delivery, we in, uh, in the health department identify 10% of new HIV infections every year. We reach populations that are hard to reach. Uh, so we are a very important resource for ending the epidemic across the city. And how, so how does this tie into the municipal hospital system, and the, what's the level of coordination there? I mean, we should, for the, the audience who doesn't know, I mean, the municipal hospital system is run separately. It's run it by is. New York City Health and Hospitals. It's a public authority. Um, but how do you work together to further some of these goals? Well, we work closely. Yeah. And in several of these uh, neighborhood action center buildings that I mentioned, we have co-located clinical services. The health department doesn't do to deliver these services directly, uh, but actually the health and hospitals, uh, uh, they have a, um, uh, this may be getting too wonky for your audience, but no, we have something called federally qualified health centers, mm -hmm. and the health and hospitals has uh, developed a, an entity called Gotham Health, mm -hmm. which has an, is an FQHC lookalike, and uh, so their clinics are are located in our buildings um, in Brownsville uh, and in Tremont, and we're hopeful that they'll get underway in, in our East Harlem building. Our East Harlem building is our, was our biggest single space. Uh, we had 50,000 square feet to mm -hmm. deliver to this model of co-location of services. Well, so far, we've had some 20,000 people uh, come in through the door. Uh, we have other city agencies that provide services in the buildings, like uh, the um, IDNYC um, um, card registration uh, offer, operates in our, some of our sites. Um, and so our idea is that people can come into these centers and have an, uh, sort of an open door to city services citywide as well as um, a, a meeting space. Many communities don't have um, you know, ready spaces in which to have community meetings, and that's proved to be really useful. We just had in the Bronx, uh, on, uh, it just closed down at the end of last month, a, an exhibit called Undoing the Red Line, uh, which reviews the history of redlining uh, in New York City and in the Bronx. And over 700 people came through to see this exhibit, um, to talk about it, to share stories, the older people there who remember the impact of redlining. Uh, so these are the sorts of, of um, broad activities that these neighborhood health action centers can, can support. I, I'm very excited about it. And these centers and the sexual health centers, are these anybody can walk in? Yes. Are there, oh, yeah, there's no, no. There, you're not, okay. Everyone <laughs> well, is welcome I guess that here. Answers that. Yeah. Um, so let's return to sort of where we started with the data point, mm -hmm. um, because this is obviously one of the most significant initiatives that you're working on, although there's others, and obviously 
Um, we want to talk to you about uh, some of the lead issues, both in NYCHA and across the city and what's happening. Uh, you've also worked on some anti-smoking initiatives. But on the Healing NYC, the uh, safe injection sites, um, I believe the administration is calling them overdose prevention sites? Or Correct. What, yeah. Well, it's uh, just so various that people can with, understand what sure. their intent is. So right. they are to prevent overdoses and right. therefore overdose prevention centers. But, but not just to prevent overdoses, right? I mean, it, the idea is to, well, why don't you explain what, sure. what you well, know, I mean, what it, is, that's why, that's me, why yeah. I get a little confused with the branding too, because it's not just about prevent, preventing overdoses. You want to help people Good point. get... Certainly. Point well taken. <laughs> so these are, are centers that have been established uh, around the world. Uh, over 60 countries have over 100 sites. Canada uh, was the first country in North America. They began in Vancouver. But now in many, many of their cities, they have uh, what they're calling now supervised consumption sites. Uh, as you pointed out with that number that comes from 2017, 1,441 overdose deaths, uh, mostly due to opioids, and of those, mostly due to heroin and this new drug called fentanyl that has entered the street drug market in New York City. It has, uh, these deaths are all preventable. Uh, and we, uh, we want to ensure that people survive uh, opioid use. And this uh, is an idea that the mayor has supported. Uh, we are now in the process of uh, negotiating with the state uh, about uh, having some uh, legal authority rendered for them as demonstration sites. And they preside a setting in which people can come in and use opioids um, uh, in, a, in a setting that has clinical oversight uh, nobody has ever died of, a, of an opioid overdose in any of these centers anywhere in the world. But additionally, in addition to ensuring that people can use drugs safely, and, um, and uh, it also provides a, a low barrier access point for people to enter, um, to enter treatment. Uh, and the department supports medication-assisted treatment, meaning a methadone or buprenorphine, uh, a newer drug that is used uh, to um, to help people who have substance dependence on opioids. Uh, and additionally, uh, when people, uh, as people remember, syringe exchange all developed because we know that uh, diseases can be spread, notably HIV, also hepatitis, uh, through shared needles. Uh, so uh, in addition, it will reduce the transmission of disease. So these will save lives. Uh, they will reduce uh, uh, transmission of preventable diseases like HIV or hepatitis B or C. Uh, and they will also um, provide people with a first step towards, towards being in a safer place, including being on treatment. So that's um, the rationale for them. And from a user's perspective, why would you go to one of these sites? Well, I think people actually use drugs not because they want to die, uh, but because they're dependent on them and because mm -hmm. they have, uh, well, that's really why people continue using them. Mm -hmm. um, there may be all kinds of psychological and um, peer group um, mm -hmm. reasons that propel people to substance use, but people continue because they're dependent on them and they don't want to die. Mm -hmm. They want to be in a safe place, for women particularly. Uh, it can be very scary to be using drugs and being high 
in a place where you may be sub, you know, subject to predatory activity. And uh, studies have shown that women in particular find them a safer place for them to be. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, where they have been uh, made available, people use them, and uh, they save lives. So I w I'm very pleased that the mayor took the step. Um, we're not the first city. There are several cities across the country, but anything New York does, we're the biggest. So just um, in terms of some of the logistics, you mentioned conversations with the state, but th these are, there's going to be a small handful of, uh, sites opening. The recommendation was four, four right. in every borough but Staten Island. And what's the timeline for trying to have them well, open? Unfortunately, uh, the timeline is really dependent on, um, on actions that the city doesn't entirely control. Uh, so the, the mayor made a couple of conditions. Um, he said that he wanted to see the state provide um, uh, a, a sort of umbrella for a legal umbrella uh, for a demonstration pro project that uh, the deputy mayor, Aminia Palacio, wrote to the state health commissioner requesting this uh, research designation. Um, and there's been some back and forth on that, but it hasn't been acquired. The next thing was uh, to have the elected official who represented the district where the, um, the OPC, as we call them now, or Overdose Prevention Center was planned, uh, should support its um, implementation. And finally, that there be a community consultation process whereby communities can express their concerns and efforts can be made to address those concerns. So that's the process, uh, but at the moment it doesn't have a timeline. Obviously, um, as health commissioner, I'm confident that these would save lives. Our modeling exercise showed that they could save up to 130 lives a year, and I would like to see us get started. So if those save 130 lives, and we use this 1,141 number that we've started with mm -hmm. here, you're still talking about still a, lot a lot of people. Of so, so beyond, or even even within these these centers, assuming mm. that they open, uh, and beyond, how what does the city do? I mean, how did, how do you? Again, I don't think anybody would expect it to be immediate, but over time, how do you drive that number down? in a big way. Sure, and, and uh, thanks for framing the question that way because I should point out that the overdose prevention centers are only part of a comprehensive response. Uh, they would never be enough and they, we really shouldn't um, start thinking of them as, an, as a magic bullet. They're part of a multi-pronged response. So uh, focusing on the medical community, which has a, you know, had a real role in the, um, in the accelerated uh, distribution of prescription painkillers by, uh, by overprescribing uh, opioids. The department has been engaged now for some years in an effort to promote what we call judicious prescribing. So that is, uh, uh, that is advising uh, physicians to only prescribe for a short period of time for acute pain, usually three days is enough. Uh, that they use the lowest possible dose, and that they look to non-opioid painkillers where appropriate. I think all of us have, you know, been somewhere to a dentist or something, gotten 30 days worth of oxycodone. It, that's crazy, and it shouldn't uh, be done. And we want to really ask physicians to and other prescribers to step up and take responsibility for for prescribing judiciously. That said, these are important drugs. 
they are part of our armamentarium of pain control. And so the department has never recommended uh, pros proscribing uh, their use with rigid rules. But we need to see, uh, we need to see prescription numbers go down. Uh, on a world scale, uh, the U.S. is a real outlier in terms of prescribing opioid painkillers. Uh, um, and we have gone down, uh, but the last number I saw was 2 million prescriptions a year for 6 million adults. That's a lot of drug. Um, so we That's still have further City. to go, yes. That's pretty astounding. Um, the, we still have further to go. And the state, as you probably know, has a whole procedure that they require by law to try and identify people who are doctor shopping. You have to look that person up before you prescribe an opioid to see what other prescriptions they've gotten. And it's a way of, um, of alerting uh, physicians or other prescribers to doctor shopping. So we want to see that tap turned off because there's no doubt that that was the window to the present op uh, opioid epidemic. But New York City has always been a heroin town and our overdose fatalities have always been driven by heroin. And that is, um, that is the situation today. And for that, we began with a real press to, uh, to get naloxone out to people who are using drugs, uh, to people who know people who use drugs. Uh, and uh, we, want, uh, we want anybody who's using drugs to have naloxone around so that they can be uh, reversed. Uh, naloxone uh, is not a form of treatment uh, for it simply will literally re reverse uh, uh, an overdose. Your, your viewers can't see the color of the tip of your pen there, blue, mm -hmm. uh, but anybody who's reversed somebody, they start out blue and you give them naloxone and they pink up and they start breathing again. It's really a miracle. And now it's provided in formulations that are really easy to administer. And I wrote a standing order now, gosh, maybe three years ago, um, so that uh, the pharmacies that accept the standing order, people can simply go in and, uh, and buy naloxone over the counter. Um, the, all of the chains, the major chains in New York City, make naloxone available over the counter. And we as a city have committed to distributing 100,000 kits, and we're ahead of schedule in doing that. And we're doing that through our syringe exchange programs, because that's obviously gets to a group of people who are using drugs, and through various community-based organizations. So. We want people to survive overdoses by being reversed. Then we want people to have an easy pathway into treatment. And the uh, stigma around methadone is something we've been working very hard to, uh, to try and undo. Uh, we wouldn't tell somebody with diabetes, you know, you're too fat. We won't treat you until you, you know, lose weight. And, uh, and then we can talk about whether you, you know, deserve treatment. Uh, you know, this idea that of getting clean is one that I really wish that we could drop that language. Um, many people who use opioids uh, will have the best possible outcome if they are on medication. The relapse rate uh, for opioid use is very, very high. People on methadone or buprenorphine get their lives back. They restore their their relationships and their family, they go to work. I could be on buprenorphine right now talking to you 
and uh, we, you know, we need to um, help people have access to the treatment that we know will be most effective. We are training people. We've committed to training 1,500 new prescribers. Uh, we know that getting people, uh, this is a buprenorphine, which is very underused in the United States compared to other countries. France, for example, tackled its opioid uh, uh, use almost entirely with buprenorphine. We have relied on methadone, which, as you know, is highly regulated. Uh, people have to go there. Uh, they have to, you know, it's a highly regulated. Nobody regulates your doctor writing that prescription. But to get methadone, it's a very highly regulated environment. It's a useful drug, and these centers often come with many social supports, but buprenorphine can be provided by your primary care provider. But getting trained to prescribe it isn't enough. And so we have a nurse care manager program where we work with primary care practices to actually make sure that they start prescribing and identifying people who are using opioids in their patient population. And we're just expanding that from, uh, I believe it was 13 to 24, uh, pro, uh, 24 sites. Uh, and so our contribution to this has been training physicians and other prescribers, physicians assistants and nurse practitioners can also now do, thankfully, to a new law um, uh, which expands the access to buprenorphine prescribing. They can prescribe it, and the cap on the number of patients has also been relaxed. So uh, we, our contribution is training prescribers and also working with practices to get the prescribers to start prescribing. Um, sounds, and, like, yeah. sounds like while the centers capture a lot of attention, they're obviously somewhat controversial and, and mm. all that, that this is this is, this is the this where is the, the key is, thing. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And the ca and the cap you mentioned is set by. Uh, that was federal law. Federal. I'm not going to remember the details okay. yeah, of yeah. it, but it uh, you were only allowed to prescribe to a certain number of people, uh, buprenorphine that is, and uh, and uh, the and that has been relaxed. I don't think it's been lifted, but it's been relaxed. Um, and I, and I also, we, we've been running a media campaign that I'm really very proud of. We started out with uh, carrying naloxone, save a life, and then with testimonials of people who've saved lives and reversed overdoses. And the last one was um, living proof was the tagline. And that was people very bravely offering up their personal stories. It was a television uh, and a print campaign. Uh, talking about their substance use and how they are now living proof that methadone and buprenorphine work. And is the city putting enough resources in that direction? Yes, uh, I, yes. Um, I should say that we are unusual as a city, and we have that in that we have vacant methadone treatment slots. And you know, obviously, I'm not you know in the midst of a, of a, the most serious. Uh, level of fatalities that the city has ever seen, it's troubling to me that we still have vacancies, but we do. So there is no uh, problem with getting access to methadone. Uh, it's heavily stigmatized, and I'm really proud that I'm pretty sure that the mayor and the first lady are the, they are the first ones who've ever even talked about methadone privately, I mean publicly and privately. Um, and, uh, you know, this is all part of trying to reduce the stigma associated with methadone, which also, let's face it, has to do with how racialized the perception of opioid use was. The, this current epidemic is, uh, is unusual in that it's mostly affecting whites. 
and the older waves of uh, opioid use, heroin use in our city uh, were really, the burden was borne born principally by black and Latino communities. And, and those were the communities that were shepherded into these highly regulated methadone treatment programs. And that also is part of the stigma around treatment. So I'm, you know, what the numbers show is that we flattened the curve. Right. So um, we, uh, we want to see it go down. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has gone down in Staten Island and Manhattan. Mm -hmm. But it still hasn't gone down in the Bronx or in Brooklyn. Have you set targets or goals for what we're well, yes. Sorry, when you say it, you mean the fatalities? I want to see the number. We don't know how many people are using drugs. Mm -hmm. Let me. Mm -hmm be clear about that. The, mm -hmm. Our window on this epidemic is the number of people who die of it. Mm -hmm. So that's a combination of who's using and how lethal the drugs are. There's no doubt that the uptick in the number of opioid deaths had to do with our street drugs becoming much more lethal because of fentanyl, this synthetic opioid that is 50 to 100 times more potent than, um, than heroin, than morphine, actually. Uh, so when it entered the, our street drugs, uh, we saw overdose deaths go up by 50%. And uh, that was between 2016 and 2017. We were late in having fentanyl added uh, appear in our street drugs. And, and for your listeners, I want to mention also that we're seeing fentanyl also in cocaine. 30% uh, of cocaine overdose deaths have fentanyl on board. And people who use cocaine aren't looking for an opioid high. They're opioid naive, making fentanyl much more lethal for them. And they're not prepared. They're not thinking of, that they need to carry naloxone. Uh, so, uh, you know, our street drugs have never been more dangerous. And we started our little campaign on that on the Lower East Side in bars with coasters saying, use cocaine, carry naloxone, or cocaine, you know, fentanyl is in our street drugs. Um, but fentanyl is part of why we're seeing so many more deaths. Uh, but when we look at the number of deaths, they have started going down in Staten Island. They went down early on for prescription painkillers, and now they're going down for overall for overdose deaths, and also in Manhattan. Uh, but they're continuing to rise in the Bronx and Brooklyn. And national data show a 50% increase in overdose deaths among African Americans. Uh, now, whites continue to have higher rates, but African Americans have a higher uh, shift in the curve. Uh, you know, the slope is going up at a higher rate. In fact, they're coming down in Staten Island and Manhattan. And uh, the, um, the uh, outer boroughs of Bronx and Brooklyn still going up. I think it's very important that uh, we keep in mind that even if we got rid of every overdose death on Staten Island, that would only decrease our overdose deaths in the city by 10%. Mm -hmm. And that's because Staten Island is, has a small relatively population, small. Mm -hmm. relatively. Every life counts. We want, well, I'm very proud of how the Staten Island community has come together and said, you know, we can't let this happen to our kids. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, have to have that same kind of uh, vigilance and anger that it's happening to young people and people in midlife in Bronx and Brooklyn, and we haven't, we haven't bent the curve yet. Yes, we have a target. We have a target of 35% uh, reduction in overdose deaths over a period of five years. Uh, but what I want to see first 
is that the curve is going down and not up. So I think, uh, in, in, especially in the interest of time, we could obviously talk about, about that issue for, for a while longer. But in the interest of time, we want to move on to a couple other topics. Um, so speaking of um, sort of issues around um, what's, you know, what's happening to kids and, and you know, threats to, to children's health and, and things of that nature, um, from your perspective as the health commissioner for the city, um, the NYCHA-led issue, give, you know, what's your mm -hmm. sort of view of where that's at and what the city is doing needs to do. Yeah, so and also I think, you know, mm -hmm. there is a perception that the City Department of Health was operating or is operating under a different standard than the CDC. Mm -hmm. So can you explain, if that's so, what the different standards are about, what the proper intervention is at each level of um, diagnosis? Sure. So, <clears throat> uh, uh, and there's a long history of lead in this city and uh, a really pioneering history for of which the... Uh, the department and is very proud. But let me just say that we are very happy that we now have the resources to intervene for children who have a blood lead level of five micrograms per deciliter, which is the current cut point of the distribution that the CDC recommends for surveillance purposes. So this is a little bit of a confusing topic, um, but let me see if I can... Um, uh, can um, presented um, simply, you'll ask me more questions if, uh, if I need to clarify anything. Over time, the idea of um, what was safe in terms of lead exposure has shifted. Back in 1960, uh, the level for intervention, the definition of lead poisoning was 60 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, then it went down to 40 in 1970. And then over the years that followed, it went from 40 to 25. And in 1990, it hit 10, where uh, that remained the level at which um, it was recommended that you treat that as lead poisoning. And, and the and, treatment and would be? The yeah, so what that meant is that the... Um, they, at that time, in 1990, what the, the CDC's technical advisory group recommended was that between 10 and 14, that people be informed, uh, that their doctor be informed, and that they individually undergo an assessment of what a lead source was for that child. Another part of this conversation, I should say, is that we very, very rarely these days see a child who needs medical treatment for elevated blood lead levels. We rarely see more than five children in a year uh, who have a blood lead level of 45 or higher. It's very, very unusual. Uh, but uh, so children below that, the way we manage those children is we identify the lead source and we monitor them to see that their lead level is going down. If their lead level is not going down, then we go back again and see if we can identify the source. So it's an iterative process. It's not a one shot at finding the source. These children are kept in follow-up. And this is so NYCHA or not NYCHA? Anywhere in the city. We have never considered uh, anything but every child in our city. Uh, I think that I can understand a rationale for the fact that when the city is, a, is the landlord, we have some kind of special obligation, but every child deserves protection from lead poisoning. And so we have never, uh, until now, separately um, provided information about children living in NYCHA. Uh, so this is about all children. So between 10 and 14, and at 15, you were supposed to take action 
make a home visit. Uh, and that's what's enshrined in our health code in Local Law 1 uh, and in the, the city legislation around lead and the state legislation around lead. 10 to 14, something should be done, and 15 and above, um, the, um, the home visit. Uh, an environmental assessment was required. The city, uh, as we pushed down the curve, started wanting to intervene at, at the health department at lower and lower levels of lead. So although it wasn't in our law or in our health court, we have been intervening at a level of 10 micrograms per deciliter. And for very young children, we went down to eight, mm -hmm. uh, children who were 16 months or later. And that, meant that in, by saying intervene, I mean going to the home and uh, checking out the home for, uh, for a lead source. All children who were five or higher, their, their um, physician who took the blood test uh, was informed that the level was elevated and that they should assess the child. That meant monitoring their blood lead level or uh, talking with the family about peeling paint. Anybody with peeling paint can on a complaint basis request an assessment of their apartment for if they have a child living there who's under the age of six. Uh, so what happened in 2012 it was really a change in philosophy of the CDC. They weren't any longer saying that we have a cut point and uh, above that cut point uh, we're really concerned and below that cut point we have less concern. They said we've looked at the data and there's never a point where concern about lead goes to zero. So that's why you'll hear people say that there's no level of lead in the blood that's safe. Uh, we want it to go down, and we, we, the best level is zero. But of course, the risk associated with the level, just like cigarette smoking, you know, one cigarette a day is not the same as two packs a day. Uh, the, the risk is, uh, varies with the, with the level. So at that time, the CDC said, we're not gonna any longer pick a new cut point. We went from 60 to 40 to 25 to 10. Now we're gonna look at the whole distribution and say we wanna see that distribution shift to lower levels. We wanna see it continue to go down. And they set this cut point at five. And that meant that 97.5% of children were below five at that time and 2.5% were above. So it was based on the distribution of results uh, in the population. And if we're doing our job as public health uh, agencies across the country, that distribution will continue to shift downwards. And the, proportion, the cut point for children uh, who stand at the upper end of the distribution or in the highest 2.5% of child blood lead levels, that cut point will continue to go down. At the moment, it stands at about five, and that is the level that we're now gonna be using not only to um, notify physicians and families, but to actually go to the home. And that's a citywide standard. We're very pleased that we will have the resources to do this, and uh, I think it's good for children. Uh, so, but just to make clear again that it's, um, that at all times the city actually has been out ahead of the, uh, of the standards promulgated by the federal government and the state government and ahead of our own codified rules uh, because we are very committed to tackling lead. Since 2004, 
We have reduced the number of uh, children with elevated blood lead levels using five as the cut point by 90%, but we still have about 5,000 children in that category, and we care about every one of those children. And if parents are concerned, I mean, when they take their child to the pediatrician, they can ask the pediatrician to yes. test for lead, right? Yes, and the, we, the way we know about these children is that all blood lead lab, uh, tests are reported to us, all, no matter how old you are. Mm -hmm. We get them all. And if you, we, it is state law uh, that we, um, that physicians test children at age one and two. And, uh, you know, the reason that we focus on very young children is that those are the kids who are crawling around, putting stuff in their mouths, uh, and lead exposure risk declines with age because you grow up and you stop putting stuff in your mouth. So we focus, right. and additionally, these are children who are most vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, because their nervous systems are still developing. And then, of course, there's the question of even if you find the presence of the pain, what do you do? Oh, well, that's NHL, clear. Right? Remediation of this Remediation condition. and abatement. No, that's clear. Right. We, the health department is very clear about that. We issue commissioner's orders. The health department has police powers. And we uh, issue orders. Uh, we can issue them against any landlord, whether it's a public housing landlord or a private housing landlord, and order them to abate a lead hazard. So I think we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, there's some topics. <laughs> there, yeah. Thank you. There's some topics, um, certainly, that we didn't get to, but we'll have you back again sometime. And obviously, um, if folks are interested in all the initiatives of the Department of Health, there's plenty of information on, on the web. And, um, and we thank you, Dr. Bassett, for joining us. Thank My you. My pleasure. Bye.